Hello, thanks for joining us on Space Nuts, where we talk astronomy and space science every week. My name is Andrew Dunkley, your host, and so glad you could join us. Coming up today, we'll be talking about magnetic fields and do they exist on exoplanets. We'll also be talking about something uh, quite extraordinary, the flattest explosion ever observed in space, and it was big too. Uh, And sad news about Virgin Orbit. We'll also be answering audience questions about uh, sending high-speed satellites into the solar system and the density of gas. That's all coming up on this edition of Space Nuts. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space Nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. And joining us to talk Turkey again this week, the Turkey constellation that is, is Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. <laughs> Good day, Andrew. Um, yeah, turkeys are, uh, yes, uh, uh, there isn't a turkey constellation. They should be, really. They should. There? Yeah, I'm sure there's, yes. there's some cluster out there that looks turkey-like. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, for most constellations, it doesn't have to look anything like no. what its name is anyway. So yeah, take your pick. No. Well, the, the, the country of Turkey could use a bit of a, um, an ah, uptick yes. at the moment. They've yes. had a pretty rough time of it. Why they not? Have. Why not the yes. Turkey constellation? That's Turkey now. Uh, yes, that's true. You're right. Yes, yes, <laughs> absolutely. Um, how you been? Oh well, thank you. Yep, yeah. um, still pushing back the frontiers. Well, <laughs> not so much the frontiers of knowledge as the frontiers of bureaucracy. Ah, yes, <laughs> yes. There's a lot of that. Yeah, we had a had a nice um, event last week uh, when uh, a virtual reality movie of the uh, site in Western Australia where the uh, radio Murchison radio telescope is, or where the square kilometre array will be, yeah. um, a virtual reality movie of all that showing you what it's like there and what kind of landscape it is, and that was launched at the National Museum of Australia in Canberra on Tuesday night, I think it was. Uh, at which I gave a little talk about astronomy and all the other stuff. And one of my colleagues, Ant Schinkel, who's um, a specialist working with the SKA, he also gave a talk. And then we had this view of the virtual reality tour, which is astonishing. Uh, it's my first real experience with decent uh, ah, um, right. stereo glasses of a virtual reality uh, movie. And yeah, you've got a 360 degree view. You turn your head round and you see behind you. Yeah, we, we did that at Easter. Nothing to do with astronomy, but uh, there's a, an escape room in Dubbo, uh, which is very popular. And they've they've brought in a virtual reality um, yeah. experience. So I did that with my boys uh, at Easter to, um, that's the first time I've ever done it too. It's, it's a bizarre uh, thing. Uh, but it's, great. A, it's a lot of fun. It's a heck of a lot yes. of fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this, 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 and this is an, a fantastic production as well. It's really well done. It will um, certainly be circulating uh, more in Australia, maybe globally. Some of our overseas listeners might find it coming up. It's called Beyond the Milky Way. Okay, it's the title of it. Sounds good. All right, let's talk about what we came together to talk about today, amongst other things. I mean, we don't always stay on track. Occasionally, we might drift, just occasionally. Um, That wouldn't be like us, would it? No, not at all, all, really. Um, 
But we, we know about Earth's magnetic field and how important it is to, uh, well, basically protect us from all the evils of the universe and to keep our atmosphere intact. Yes, so the question right. has been raised, um, do you find magnetic fields on exoplanets? Now, this is a very important question because obviously if we're looking for life out there, we probably need to find a planet that has um, a rocky surface with... Yep probably water or something similar and it would have to have a magnetic field would it not but yes um it, it probably would be an important component mm. because uh, exactly as you said our uh, the earth's magnetic field protects the atmosphere uh it also protects the surface from the the more energetic subatomic particles that are floating around in space m many of which are launched from the sun uh, with its solar wind and occasional solar flares, we are largely protected, not entirely, but largely protected from the effects of those things on the Earth's surface by the Earth's own magnetic field. Yeah. So, yes, the question is, do rocky exoplanets have magnetic fields? Now, I, I have to say that I would uh, assume that the answer to that is probably yes, because planets tend to be made in the same way, no matter where in the universe they are. Um, and rocky uh, planets uh, probably usually have, like the Earth does, uh, a core made of uh, iron and nickel. And that is what generates the magnetic field. It acts like a dynamo and generates the Earth's magnetic field as, as the Earth rotates. So you'd think that the answer would probably yes, be yes to the question of do rocky planets around uh, other stars have magnetic fields? And so observations have been made with the Carl G. Jansky Very Large, Ray, Very Large Array, which is a, a telescope, um, a, a, an array telescope in the United States, yeah. uh, one of the biggest in the world, actually. Uh, I've visited it. It's quite an extraordinary place. Um, operated by the U.S. National Science Foundation's National Radio Astronomy Observatory. And so uh, observations have been made by scientists of uh, a star called YZ SETI, um, which is a star that actually emits radio signals. Now, not all stars do, but this one does. Yep. And um, the, the, what, the, what the scientists have done is used the radio signals coming from this star, which is about 12 light years away, so it's a, it's a close uh -huh. star, uh, to interpret uh, what is happening uh, to its planet. Because we know that YZ SETI, ha I should say YZ SETI, shouldn't I, just for our American listeners. Potato, uh, potato. That's the one, yes. Uh, is YZ SETI B uh, is a known planet uh, orbiting the star. Yep. Uh, and... Um, what has been observed are uh, sort of uh, bursts of radio waves um, which are to do with the interaction between the star's magnetic field and the planet going around it. Now, the, the good thing about this planet is it goes around once in two days. Oh. So it's very close to its parent star. And that means um, that there are probably, you know, magnetic interactions uh, um, taking place between them if the planet has a magnetic field. Yeah. So uh, to cut the long story short, um, these bursts of, of radio emission um, um, 
have been analysed and, de- and the, there is enough evidence that they are um, that the scientists in question are convinced that what they've proved is that the planet uh, YZ SETI B has its own magnetic field. Um, so there are a number of uh, different um, uh, a number of different scientists involved with this, including the director of the National Radio Astronomy Observatory and astronomers from Bucknell University and the University of Colorado. So quite a a, a disparate group of uh, principally U.S. scientists who've been looking at this, uh, and um, some very nice quotes from those scientists. Mm. Um, one of them uh, who says, "I'm seeing this thing that no one has seen happen before," which is uh, always a nice thing when you're when you're a working astronomer and you're sitting at a big telescope somewhere and something turns up. Um, um, we saw the uh, initial burst and it looked beautiful. This is a quote from another of them. When we saw it again, it was very indicative that, okay, maybe we really have something here. So what they're say- saying is that as this planet goes round its star, um, they have uh, it, it, it interacts with the magnetic field of the star in such a way that you get, you get bursts of, of radio energy. Uh, and so, um, the, in, in fact, so let me read another quote from one of the scientists. Uh, what we're doing is looking for a way to see the invisible magnetic fields. We're looking for planets that are really close to their stars and are similar in size to Earth. Uh, these planets are way too close to their stars to be somewhere you could live, but because they're so close to the planet, it's kind of plowing through a bunch of stuff coming off the star, and that's the equivalent of, this, of the solar wind that we have in the solar system. If the planet has a magnetic field and it plows through enough star stuff, it will cause the star to emit bright radio waves. And that's uh, what they are interpreting this, these bursts as being. Mm. Uh, in fact, they've, they've kind of um, coined a new phrase, which is really nice, um, extrasolar space weather, uh, space weather beyond the solar system. So w- when we think of space weather, we think of the environment of the Earth principally, but, uh, but the subatomic particles within, within the inner solar system that come from the sun. And space weather's actually a... It's a big issue. In fact, I was talking to one of my colleagues in the space agency yesterday about exactly this: uh, how you how you deal with space weather, yeah, um, uh, in a, in a probably in a legislative fashion, because that's what a lot of the what the space agency does. But the, but you, yeah, you've got to make the rules. So how does it work? Um, um, you know what 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 uh, what's the what's the uh, what's the story with it? Anyway, what? sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I, I'm just. I don't mean to throw a bucket of water over the discovery, but should we be surprised that exoplanets probably have magnetic fields? I mean, we were surprised when we found the first exoplanet, but we always thought there'd be one, and now we've found thousands. So it stands to reason that a lot of them would have magnetic fields as well. Yes, and that is certainly true, and it's already been established with the bigger ones, like the, you know, the hot Jupiters. Yeah. Uh, that's been established that they all, that they do have magnetic fields. These things are bigger, brighter, beefier in every way, and so things like that are easier to detect. Yeah. But the crucial thing about this is that this is a rocky planet, an Earth-like planet in ah. terms of its size, and that's the difference. But uh, you know, as I said at the beginning, you, you might well expect it, given that if it's a rocky planet made like the rocky planets in the solar system, it will probably have an iron core 
uh, which will give rise to a magnetic field. Um, on the other hand, here's a counter-argument to that, Andrew. Um, Venus doesn't, um, and neither does Mars. Oh. So there are two rocky planets in our solar system, which are quite nearby, that don't have magnetic fields. Um, and certainly not not uh, magnetic fields today. Now, Mars is thought to have had a magnetic field, uh, but it's lost its magnetism because it's it's too small uh, for that to be sustained by the, the core of the planet. Yeah. Uh, the, the planet's cooled down too much. Venus is a different kettle of fish, though, because it, it, it's Earth-like. It's, well, it's a, almost the same size, aren't we? Earth yes, that's right, yeah. So yeah, if Venus doesn't have a magnetic field, then it's not a not a foregone conclusion that any rocky planet is going to have a magnetic field. Yeah. Uh, so that's the the issue. Now there is one twist to this story that I found fascinating, yeah. and that is that um, magnetic fields, uh, when you combine them with uh, solar wind, and that's what, uh, the, the, what we're talking about with space weather. Uh, that's what produces the aurora on the Earth, the yes. northern and southern lights, the aurora borealis, the aurora, Austra aurora australis. And, and we see them on the gas giants too, don't we? We do, yeah. All the, all the gas giants have aurora as well. Yeah. Um, now, the these now aurora can be detected in radio waves as well as visible light. That's the crucial thing. So you can, you can know about aurora from radio astronomy. Mm. And it turns out, that this YB SETI system has aurora, uh, but what they're actually seeing is aurora on the star. Oh, what? <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> Interactions between the magnetic field and the and the wind of particles coming off um, cause magnetic disturbances, which they can identify as being due to aurora, even though we can't see them. Uh, but they also think that if the planet has its own atmosphere, and that's certainly not something that's known, uh, if it did, that would also have aurora. Quite incredible. So, so, yeah, that's that, that's another thing. Aurora could be a very common thing in the universe too, sounding like it. Yes. Yeah, mm. that's right. Indeed. Wow. That's that's quite a discovery. See, I, I, I didn't tip water on them. I just... Oh, no, you didn't. You, you brought up an angle that created more yeah, information. More. More information. That's that's correct. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. No, you, you, it's always good to um, to be sceptical of these things. Oh, I I'm an optimist when it comes to astronomy. Oh, I know you. Yes. So am I. Yes, <laughs> indeed. Actually, I'm an optimist when it comes to pretty well everything. I have to say, <laughs> which really annoys some people. Well, yes, <laughs> but they're pessimists. But um, well, if you want to chase up this story, you can go to one of our favourite websites and, and read up on it, phys.org, P-H-Y-S, by the way, phys.org. This is Space Nuts, Andrew Dunkley here with Professor Fred Watson. Three, two, one, Space Nuts. Now, Fred, uh, this one fascinates me because this is only a, a fairly recent discovery in terms of what we're talking about. It only dates back to, uh, I think, 2018 when they first spotted one of these. Um, they're called an F-Bot, F-B-O-T. <laughs> and uh, basically we're describing a cataclysmic explosion in space, but they're different from an explosion as we know it. Now, most explosions sort of go out in all directions simultaneously. This one didn't, and they've just discovered another one, and it's one of the biggest 
um, or flattest explosions ever observed. I would see. Yes, that's right. So yeah, the F bot, um, an F bot in this uh, in this instance is a fast blue optical transient. Yeah, it could it could also it could also stand for a fantastically big optical telescope. It could do, <laughs> but it but it doesn't. <laughs> it's a fast blue optical transient, and so that kind of tells you about it. it. It's optical, so you see it's invisible light. It's blue because that's the wavelength range, the blue rate wavelength range that it emits its light in. It's fast because it comes and goes very quickly, uh, and transient just is, is referring to um, the fact that it is something that is not permanent. It's temporary, mm. transient in its nature. Uh, this is a, a star in uh, another galaxy, a galaxy about 180 million light years away. So it's not part of our local group of galaxies, which goes out to about five or oh, 10 million light years, perhaps a few more. Um, but this um, is uh, some an explosion of a star that has some uh, that, that has some difference from what we normally see. Normally, when you see an exploding star, Andrew, as you well know, is it's a supernova. Yeah, it's a, a star that's got to the end of its life, uh, run out of hydrogen, uh, uh, run out of everything it needs to burn in the normal way. Didn't pass tolls. Yeah, didn't paste holes, all of that. And, you know, everything has come to an end and it collapses. Uh, and in the process of the collapse, you get this huge uh, emission of energy uh, as it winds up becoming, an, or its core becomes a neutron star or perhaps a black hole. Yeah. But this is something different. And it's, um, it, and it is, uh, I have to say, uh, not clear how these F bots work. Okay. Um, uh, Scientists, uh, and this study has been done mostly by British scientists, uh, d don't really know what causes fast blue optical transients, but they can observe them. Uh, and this particular one has been observed uh, with a smallish telescope. And it's actually um, one I know quite well because uh, whilst it's not the one at Siding Spring Observatory, uh, which is called the Las Cumbres two-meter telescope. Uh, this is called the Liverpool telescope. So it's a it's Liverpool telescope. It's a two-meter diameter telescope, um, and it was made by uh, a sort of corporation in Liverpool in the United Kingdom. In fact, they made about five of them, I think. One came to our observatory here in Australia. One went to uh, the island of Maui uh, on in ho the Hawaiian chain. And one called the Liverpool Telescope is actually on La Palma in the Canary Islands. That's an island, again, that hosts large telescopes on one of its volcanic peaks. I used to work there a lot during the 1990s. Yeah. Uh, so the Liverpool Telescope um, has a, a piece of equipment on it which uh, is um, specialised in the world of astronomy, but very, very powerful in terms of what it can tell you. And um, I'm... Um, Kind of friendly with scientists here in in the uh, University of New South Wales who use similar equipment. These are called polarimeters, and they measure polarization not not just the brightness of light or its color. That's to say, its wavelength. They also measure whether or not it is polarized uh, and uh, whether what the amount of that polarization is. And we kind of know about polarization from 
polarizing sunglasses. Yeah. Um, the idea being that uh, the vibrations uh, of light waves, uh, in when when the light is polarized, they sit in one particular plane, uh, or sometimes they rotate. Actually, which is more complicated, but but it's essentially uh, the, the the equipment that's on the Liverpool telescope is the equivalent of a pair of polarizing sunglasses. So that uh, as you rotate them, uh, you see different intensities. Uh, in 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 the case of polarizing sunglasses, it's to to kill the bright reflections coming off a road or a bright surface, uh, which you can do by blocking out that uh, that polarization of the light. Yeah. Um, so you can do something similar in astronomy. And th- now polarization is caused by um, principally uh, emission from dusty particles, things that have got uh, an alignment to them. They're, 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 they're you know, perhaps shaped uh, like a pencil or something like that. Uh, and if you've got lots and lots of particles of dust that are, are aligned, for example, by magnetic fields, uh, you can work out from the polarization where those magnetic fields go. Uh, I'm not explaining this very well, but it lets you determine uh, some structure in an, a, a, you know, a source of radiation that you wouldn't otherwise be able to see. And that's how, um, just by looking at the light that's come from this F-bot, yep. uh, these scientists can tell that there is a flat disk of material around it, as you said, the size of the solar system, um, which is the result of the explosion. Something has exploded, and it's exploded not in a spherical fashion like we expect everything to do, including supernovae. Uh, It's produced a flat disk of material, and that uh, is a a mystery. Uh, How, how, uh, How does... First of all, how do these things work? Yeah, uh, and and secondly, how does it create this flat disk? Uh, there's a, a scientist, the lead author of this study, who's actually in Sheffield, in the north of England, uh, University of Sheffield's Department of Physics and Astronomy, uh, Dr. Justin Mond, says very little is known about F-bot explosions. They just don't behave like exploding stars should. They're too bright and they evolve too quickly. Put simply, they are weird. Yeah. This new observation makes them even weirder. Um, there's a little bit more, uh, perhaps, I can read uh, from Dr. Mond. Hopefully, this new finding will help us shed a bit more light on them. We never thought that explosions could be this aspherical. There are a few potential exp- explanations for it. The stars involved may have created a disk just before they died, or they could be failed supernovas, where the core of the star collapses to a black hole or a neutron star, which then eats the rest of the star. Uh-huh. What we now know for sure is that the levels of asymmetry recorded are a key part of understanding these mysterious explosions, and it challenges our preconceptions of how stars might explode in the universe. We never thought that they'd go off bang with a uh, with a flat disk. Yeah. So yeah, you always yep. think of everything that explodes in the universe as going out in all directions simultaneously, uh, spherically. Uh, yes. May I ask, and I, I don't presume to be um, sort of again tipping water on their on their observations and discoveries, but uh, could it be we're only seeing part of the explosion and that there is, in fact, a spherical outburst and we just can't see parts of it, or are they pretty certain this is a dead flat type of explosion? uh, That's a a really interesting uh, comment, Andrew. Well done, and you should write to these people and tell them that, because there are things in the universe where we think we're seeing something, but... What's really happening is that 
we're not seeing the whole picture. Yeah. And often it's a dust cloud or something like that that is blocking our our view uh, of what's what's what else is there, if I could put it that way. Yeah. So it's possible, you know, you could imagine that, yes, uh, something like a dust cloud could be uh, blocking our view and, and all we're seeing is the, is the flattened exploding disk. I think what uh, knocks that on the head... Okay, fair enough. And so maybe you shouldn't write, the, write to them. Is <laughs> that the way they've detected this is by polarization. And I suspect if it was just a spherical explosion and part of it was being blocked off, we wouldn't have that phenomenon. Yeah. It wouldn't be, the light wouldn't be polarized. Um, so it's something to do with the actual structure of this disk of material uh, that, that gives you the polarization. And that is, uh, is telling you that it really is a flattened disk of stuff that this star's emitted, rather than uh, rather than a, a blocked off view of something more symmetrical. Yeah, and the other interesting thing is that, uh, like many things we've talked about recently, this is a fairly new discovery. As I said at the start, the, the very first one of these was only discovered in 2018. So yes, this is this is a whole new realm that we're again trying to understand. Um, it's right up there with the uh, uh, dark matter and dark energy and even black holes, we don't really understand a lot about them. This this is another one. Yeah, that's right. And of course, that's the great thing about astronomy. When something new like this comes up, it sends the, the theoreticians back to their drawing boards, scratching their heads. How can we account for this? How can we explain yeah. what's going on here? So it pushes physics along as well to try and understand what, what actually is happening. Yes, indeed. Okay, that's on the phys.org website as well. But if you want to do some deeper reading about it and read 500 pages of uh, <laughs> of authors, monthly. go yes. to the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society. That's where you'll find the paper on FBOTS. This is Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Professor Fred Watson. Okay, we checked all four systems and in with a go. Space Nuts. Now, Fred, before we go to questions... This this is a story that uh, came as quite a surprise to me, and this is only um, uh, a recent uh, announcement, but uh, some bad news for Virgin Orbit. Yes, that's right. Uh, so Virgin Orbit, which is you know a spin-off really from Virgin Galactic, and you remember their um, their stock in trade is the launch of orbital vehicles uh, using a, a converted Boeing seven four seven. Yep. Uh, to carry a rocket up to 40,000 feet or thereabouts where upon the rockets dropped and it ignites and off it goes to launch uh, payloads into orbit. Uh, it's, it's got marvelous advantages actually because you can do orb launches at short notice. You can launch from anywhere. Basically, you don't have to um, be you know, on, a, on a continent. And you would have thought that that would have, um, that would have been a very commercially attractive thing uh, and would have, you know, naturally resulted in a company uh, at least staying viable and probably doing very well. But um, what seems to have happened uh, is that because of SpaceX now being able to uh, essentially bring down the cost of launch by actually recovering their launch vehicles and using them again, we've talked about this many times, the fact that SpaceX's Falcon 9s can be used up to about 20 times yes. now. Yes, uh, and that's brought the price down, uh, and the suspicion is that that has made Virgin Orbit less competitive. Um, plus, they had uh, 
sadly, uh, their last launch uh, didn't work. We covered it, actually. Uh, It was uh, earlier this year um, where the rocket, uh, I think the second stage failed because of a filter that was blocked. Um, This was a a launch made from southwest Britain uh, uh, from the uh, aircraft took off uh, um, and uh, launched over or off the shore of Cornwall. Um, so, yeah, unfortunately, the satellites that were launched didn't make it. Uh, they uh, didn't make the second stage because of that filter yeah. issue. And so that's uh, that's very sad. And that might kind of be the, the final straw um, that's caused this company now to file for bankruptcy. Very sad. Uh, Virgin Orbit. Mm. Yes, very sad. Um, especially for us in Australia, because I think the next launch was planned to take place from uh, the one of the airfields in Queensland in Toowoomba. That's right. I uh, remember they that. were planning to launch from there. Yeah, yeah, it would have been very exciting for the for the city. Toowoomba is a beautiful place. It uh, is, and um, yeah, it's it's a real pity. Uh, this doesn't uh, have any impact on Virgin Galactic at all, though, does it? Uh, not as far as we know. Um, I mean, Virgin Galactic's gone quiet at the moment. Um, after I think the first flight, if I remember rightly, can't remember whether that was, that was last year when. Branson flew on yeah. the rocket plane, uh, but we're still waiting for fair-paying passengers to be to be launched up there. Yeah, all right. Um, there'll probably be more on this down the track. Yeah. Okay, Fred, let's uh, get to some questions. Got a couple of text questions today. Hey, Fred and Andrew, long-time listener, first-time caller. And I was wondering why we haven't seen or heard of more exploratory missions where we send a satellite at extremely high velocity out towards objects in the solar system or perhaps beyond. Given the rapid advances in technology, it is, um, is it feasible to do fast science in space? I assume the fastest man-made object is also, called, uh, is also uh, space-related. And uh, any idea what the fastest man-made object is? and the implications of high relative velocities in space and the impact it has on said object and the data that we're able to collect. Being Expanse fans, I recall uh, a character racing around the solar system and being uh, a gearhead myself, this topic is near and dear. (laughs) Uh, So, uh, yeah, that's from Michael in uh, North Dakota, far North Dakota, he makes a point of saying. Uh, So, um, yeah, look... We've done a few missions out there, and of course you think of the Voyager probes, which are still going, even though they're having to shut things down bit by bit to keep them alive. But um, yeah, why haven't we done more? Why can't we, with the current technology, just go boom, send something out at super high speed and um, and do some exploring? Yeah, so yeah, uh, the technology is it is advanced. But you're still limited by the physics of, you know, the chemistry of, of rocket propulsion and, and the physics behind it. Uh. Um, so um, the fastest launch, I think I'm right in saying this, was New Horizons. Yeah. Uh, which had to be quickly boosted to a velocity uh, that would take it past Jupiter so that it um, got a slingshot out to Pluto. It was launched in 2006. It flew by Pluto in 2015 uh, and is now escaping the solar system. Um, It's uh, had its uh, rendezvous with um, Arakoth, that strange little 
double asteroid that uh, was in the headlines the beginning of the year before last. I lose track of these things. It might have been, been the year before that. I think 2021, I think it was. Yeah. Uh, so that's the nearest thing to, you know, to what Michael's suggesting. Um, and, and that really pushed the technology uh, to get New Horizons up to that high initial launch speed. Um, I suspect he's right that the fastest human-made object is a spacecraft. Um, I'm trying to think of terrestrial experiments. The, would... the Helios satellites, uh, apparently the first two satellites designed to study the sun, travelled at 157,078 miles per hour. They're, they're, I'm told they're the fastest ever man-made objects in space. Okay. And the fastest um, object on Earth, you're going to yeah. love this. This was yeah. during a nuclear bomb test called Operation Plumbob. And uh, Robert right. Brownlee was uh, asked to design the test and he, um, he, put a, um, <laughs> he put a cover over the, um, the test um, point, the test uh, tube, if you like. Right. And yes. he wanted to test the speed of the uh, the manhole cover when the explosion happened, and uh, I don't know exactly how he did it, but it came out. It got blown into the um, into the stratosphere at one hundred and twenty five thousand miles an hour. So that's the fastest Earth based man made object, uh, as far as I can tell. That's just a quick search I've done, but um, yeah. and I think one of the fastest objects that carried a person uh, in space was Apollo ten. Apollo 10 capsule at 20, okay. 24,791 mi uh, miles an hour. That's quick. Yes. Um, I, I never think in miles an hour, Andrew. No, I'm, I'm just I'm trying to doing convert rapidly it. converting these to kilometers per second. Yeah. Um, so that last one's about 11, I think, which is actually the escape velocity of, of Earth. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, yeah, the I love the manual cover. That's a um, that's a great story. The fastest, the the fastest spacecraft, as we speak today. Yep. However, is Voyager One, uh, which you mentioned earlier, which is still travelling away from the sun. It's just under seventeen kilometers per second. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's the, you know, in terms of. Um, uh, uh, something that's ongoing, that's the fastest human-made object. Uh, it's moving away at that speed and, uh, you know, will keep going forever probably pretty well. Um, Until so, it hits something. Yes, uh, or not. Um, it's more likely to go into orbit around something. Um, if yeah. It, you know, if it uh, winds up in a foreign solar system, um, on the other hand, it could fly through a solar system a bit like Uwuramuwa did. Yeah, and baffle uh, any uh, sentient beings that are that are out there. But it could anyway, get, it um, could get caught in the orbit of another planet because we yep. we've had that happen here yep. with Earth. We had a second moon there for a little while. It might still yes, be which, there, as far as I know. A, yes, that's right. Tiny little exactly. thing. So, um, so I yeah. So Voyager One uh, certainly holds the record at the moment as being the fastest spacecraft uh, flying. If it was on its way to Proxima Centauri, it would get there in 74,000 years. Yeah. So that the kind of... The nearest star. <laughs> that kind of makes the high-speed technology of today still fairly redundant in terms of long-haul space yes. travel, unfortunately. <laughs> Indeed it does. Okay. Thank you, Michael. Let us move on to our next question from another Michael who calls himself Mike. Uh, he's from Brisbane. 
uh, high space nutters. The density of gas in the vacuum of space, we're always talking about and looking at gas clouds in space. So my question is, what is the density of gas in between the planets of the solar system? What is the density of gas in between the stars and the galaxies? What is the density of gas between galaxies? Also, what is the density of gas in a typical nebula? Uh, I'm assuming the answer will be X number of atoms per cubic meter with X being a small number. Regards, Mike. It's a good question. Uh, it's good and Mike's given the answer as well. Oh, okay. um, <laughs> so uh, it is, it's a small number of, of uh, atoms per cubic meter. Um, got a feeling that when I wrote Spacewalk, uh, I was it no, was it Cosmic Chronicles? I think I talked about this stuff. Right at the beginning, I can't remember. Hmm. Uh, said he reaching for one of his own books. Uh, well, if it's in there, that, yeah, it might be. It might be easy to because I talked about. Um, I talked about uh, you know finding yourself in a, a typical place in space. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, I remember. Where I would that be that before? Yeah. And the answer is, it's dark and it's cold and it's empty, and somewhere. Uh, I thought I'd given how many atoms per cube. Here we are. If you're lucky, all right. This is in this is in normal. Uh, it is in a typical uh, a typical location. So it's between the galaxies. It's not in a solar system. Uh -huh. This is in the depths of space. If you're lucky, you might find one atom of hydrogen in the volume of space normally taken up by 15 adults a cubic meter. <laughs> wow! So what, that's that's typical, you know, uh, or typical of of the intergalactic space, one atom per cubic meter, and it it goes up from there. Um, uh, with, uh, I guess, you know, the, the the nearer you are, if you're in the intergalactic in interstellar medium in our galaxy, it's significantly higher. It's probably measured in tens of atoms per cubic meter. Uh, the solar environment uh is is rather more populated it's probably hundreds of atoms per cubic meter yeah. but it's still a vacuum to all intents and purposes yeah um, i'd have to look up the numbers and and i'm sure mike is as capable as i am uh, of doing that um to find the you know density of um of of the uh, the, the things to look up interstellar medium solar wind those sorts of places, that's where you want to find the numbers, mm. the exact numbers. Uh, but it you, is small, it's tiny. If you were to talk about one of those beautiful nebula, like the Horsehead Nebula or something, what, what yes. would be the density in something like that? It's still still extremely low. So you could fly um, through it? You could fly through it? Absolutely, uh, yeah. Wow. It's, uh, it's, it's very low. Um, uh, that just uh, uh, There's an adjunct to that. A little story in the history of astronomy, yeah. um, and it, it kind of illustrates how low these nebula densities are. Because when nebulae were first observed with the spectroscope by a man called William Hugg Huggins back in in London in the eighteen sixties, uh, he found um, e emission, uh, and you, you know it's the kind of uh, optical fingerprint of of gases that we we use to to work out what's in space. Yeah, he found he found these what we call emission lines, this fingerprint of some gas that was completely unknown on Earth, um, and they actually called it nebulium because they thought they didn't they discovered a new element that was in the 1860s, uh. and nebulium was one of the huge mysteries throughout the 
latter days of the 19th century into the first couple of decades of the 20th century because um, it got to be an even bigger mystery because by then the periodic table had been invented and there were no gaps where there could be this uh-huh. nebulium thing. And it was a man called Ira Bowen, who was an American astronomer, later became the director of Lick Observatory, if I remember rightly, who worked out what it was. He'd had some hints by some comments by another astronomer before him, but he figured out that what we were seeing was emission from a normal gas, but at a very, very low pressure where the atoms don't bump into each other at all. Uh, which is what you get in a nebula. Yeah. Um, there's hardly any bumping of uh, together of atoms. Coffee time. It is my oh. coffee. <laughs> Hello. Morning, everyone. <laughs> yeah. Andrew can't talk to you because I'm you on the head. Hear me. <laughs> yeah. I'll leave you to it. All right. Thank you. We're nearly done. Yeah. So, so it, it's just a, you know, it was, that was when. They recognised that this was nearly a vacuum, um, and the, the atoms are so far apart they, they don't interact, and that gives you this different uh, signature yeah. for what is an otherwise normal gas. In fact, they those spectrum lines uh, are called forbidden lines because they're forbidden on Earth, right? But they're not in the depths of space. Fascinating. Hmm. I want to write a I once wrote a poem about it called Forbidden Lines. Maybe I should read it one day. Maybe on you space should. Notes. Maybe you should. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> there you go, Mike. I'm sure you're glad you asked the question, even though yeah. you, knew, yeah. you knew the answer by the sound of it. Yes. Very yeah. good. Uh, don't forget, if you do want to send us a question, you can go to our website, spacenutspodcast.com or spacenuts.io. There's a little tab up the top called AMA or a link, if you like. Uh, you can click on that to send us audio or text questions. Or you can click the send us your voice message tab on the right hand side and don't forget to tell us who you are and where you're from and while you're on there uh, have a look around uh, there's the space nuts shop there's the astronomy daily newsletter which you can sign up for and get a daily dose of uh, astronomy and space science uh, you can learn about supporting space nuts uh, by becoming a patron it's all on our website spacenutspodcast.com Fred, that brings us to the end of another episode. Thank you so much, sir. It's a pleasure, and um, I'm sure we'll do it again sometime. I reckon we will. Before, sometime soon, soon, I hope. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Okay, take care. We'll talk to you soon. Sounds great. Thanks, Andrew. Fred Watson, astronomer at large, part of the team here at Space Nuts Central. I'll call it that from now on. Uh, and yeah, thanks good, to you in like the studio. That. For what, I don't know, but thanks anyway. And from me, Andrew Dudley. <laughs> Thanks for your company. Looking forward to joining you again on the next episode of Space Nuts. Bye-bye. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. <laughs>